So there is need everywhere. Anybody? Amen. <laughs> um, we all have need, each, each and every one of us. We came in with our needs, various ways to various degrees. So many people around us in need. Our family members, our friends may have needs. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's needs all around us, right? Down at the Sunday Breakfast Mission, at a Door of Hope, Urban Promise, Green Bray Project, Comfort Foundation, Voice of the Martyrs, International Justice Mission, Compassion International, and on and on and on. And we're also going to encounter need as we're out and about, right? Whether it's a homeless beggar on the street corner, at the stoplight, or at the gas station. There are plenty of other kinds of needs as well. People who are in dangerous or unhealthy situations. Those who are suffering. Those who are grieving. Those who are lonely. Those who are depressed. And again, on and on and on. And just like we may avoid someone with a financial need, we can sometimes avoid people with these other needs too. We see them coming and we avoid. We close our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Sometimes it's because we don't want to be bothered. Sometimes it's because we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. Sometimes it's because we don't know how to be helpful. Sometimes it's because we fear it will require more than we have or want to give. Or, you know, some of you might be kind of wired in such a way where you're willing to help anyone and everyone, but perhaps you also don't know what to do or say or how to be helpful, and it's just easy for you to write a check or give a handout, but you don't think enough about whether what you're doing is truly helpful. You don't think about, maybe think about enough, whether you are helping or enabling. You don't tend to ask the questions or do the vetting that would be wise. We need wisdom here, don't we? When it comes to meeting needs, we need wisdom. How to wisely meet need, because we're going to meet need as we walk through this world, right? We've got plenty of it ourselves, and others have it as well. This world is full of need. So the title of this morning's message from the book of Proverbs is Need Wisdom to Meet Need, okay? That's what this message from Proverbs is about. So now that we've made it through chapters 1 through 9, the remainder of the messages in this series in Proverbs are going to be thematically arranged. If you actually read the Friday email, which I'm sure you all do, right? Top to bottom. Like, totally read it. I saw your hand. That's good. Actually listed all of the messages from here on out and what the themes are. So next week's wise words. And then it's going to be wisdom at work. Okay? So this morning, it's we need wisdom to meet need. We need to live, this is kind of the bottom line, we need to live open to and receptive to God. Okay, he's God, we're not. 
We need to trust in him with all of our heart, not lean on our own understanding. Not, not like, ooh, I don't like that, so I'm gonna stiff arm what he says. We need to leave, live open and receptive to what God says and to his grace to enable it, right? And that will enable us to live open and receptive to the needs of others, okay? We gotta be honest with ourselves when it comes to these things, not avoiding, not enabling. We need love and we need wisdom. Like, we, we need so many things to even know how to meet need. I think we're all prone to turn our back on or close off to God and others at various times. So this morning's message, I'm just gonna give you a heads up, is gonna be convicting. It's convicting to me. Um, let's just welcome God's word. Let's face it, press into it, not avoid or ignore it or write it off. So remember that God intends to change us and mold and shape us and bless us, giving us his wisdom, help us. Like we need to trust him in that. It means we're gonna need to repent. We're gonna need to turn and change. Remember back in 123, God by his wisdom says to us, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. And also make you a conduit of that wisdom and grace to others as well. So listen, one other thing that we should keep in mind as we consider this theme this morning, wisdom isn't just an intellectual category, right? We considered that from early on. It's a moral category. So we've said throughout this series that wisdom is skill or competence for living life as God intended. It's going with the grain of God's universe, the way he set it up. So we don't just need to know in our heads how to meet need. We need to wisely meet need in real life. Like that's what God's calling us to. He's not just going to give us factoids to kind of like fill up our heads this morning. It's here's how I want you to live in real life with real need, right? So what does the book of Proverbs teach us about how to wisely meet need? Well, one of the first things we find is that we've got to start with theology and anthropology. We've got to start with who God is and who we are, meaning us human beings. Okay, so the nature of God and the nature of man. Point number one, there's six points. The first one's the longest, and they're going to get progressively shorter, sort of, okay? So here we go. Ready? So here's another thing I would say just orientation-wise. In the past, we've had like a chunk of text, and we're walking through it. We're going to be hitting a bunch of different texts. So they're going to be up on the screen. That's not so that you check out, and like you probably can't turn to every single one of them, but... Again, we want to focus on the text and really be attentive. So I, I would encourage you to have, you know, Proverbs open here. And some of them we're going to be kind of looking at slow enough. But if you get behind or whatever, the texts are going to be on the screen as well. All right. So the first point, we start with God and man, nature of God, nature of man. So first point, the image of God and human need. So let's look first at Proverbs 1421. Okay, it says this. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. So, pretty obvious, pretty clear, like we're not to despise our neighbor, whether rich or poor. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Why? 
Why is this command at the heart of how God made the world? Why is this wisdom? Well, look at the next verse, a little bit further in chapter 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man, that would be kind of like despising your neighbor, the opposite of being generous. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy, sounds a lot like verse 21, honors that person's maker. Okay, so if you oppress a poor person, you're doing it because you can, but you also do it because you think, whether consciously or unconsciously, subconsciously, that you are superior and the poor man is inferior as if he's a second-class human being or a commodity or a tool to be used for your advantage. So if you do that, you are insulting, not just, you're not just dishonoring him. You're actually insulting his maker, his creator. You both alike are created. You are ultimately no different than him. What right do you have to oppress rather than love, to despise rather than love this poor neighbor? Proverbs 22, 2 says, the rich and the poor meet together and Yahweh is the maker of them all. So if instead, back to the second part of 1421, the first verse that we started with, you are generous to the needy, then you honor that person's maker. You are treating that needy person like the worthy image bearer that they are. Okay? It's anthropology, biblical anthropology. That's where we start with the what is true about the nature of, of people. We're made in God's image, whether rich or poor. So you actually honor that person's maker if you treat them with the dignity that he invested in them as an image bearer. You honor their maker, the one in whose image they are made. Similarly, Proverbs 17.5 says, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And maybe that just seems like, oh, who would do that? I mean, that's so cruel. Mocks the poor. Um, we might just blow right by that. But have you ever said something like, serves those people right? Or, I can't stand those people. Proverbs 17.5 says, that arrogant perspective incurs the punishment of God. On the other hand, the righteous know the rights of the poor. Look at 29.7. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. It's pretty interesting language, the rights of the poor. What are the rights of the poor? Well, we could say, what are the rights of image bearers? There's a very interesting passage in Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. Look at it here. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Or if you have an ESV, you can see there's a little footnote. You look down at the bottom, it says, from its owners. Huh. Do not withhold good from those to whom that good belongs. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it when you have it with you. So actually, because your neighbor is made in the image of God, they have a right to be neighbored, to be loved as a neighbor. 
as yourself. This is loving your neighbor as yourself, Proverbs style. So Ray Ortland writes this. He says, if you have good, commenting on 327 and 28, if you have good you can do for somebody, then legally you own it. But morally, they own it. We sin against each other not only by the bad things we do, but also by the beautiful things we withhold. Withheld love is a life-depleting sin. It is a sin to tell ourselves, I'm not doing anybody any harm. The question is, what good are you withholding? Jesus withheld no good thing from you. All around us are opportunities to breathe life into more people. We cannot do everything, but we can do something for his sake. If we have the ability, they have the ownership, and we owe it today, not tomorrow. This is sobering. It's convicting. And guess what? It's not an isolated teaching. It's what's implied each time love your neighbor as yourself is commanded, which is like all over the place, right? I mean, you know there was the expert in the law that came to Jesus and said, you know, what must I do to be saved and love God, love neighbor? Well, who's my neighbor? Because he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make sure that he was checking off all the boxes. And Jesus said, okay, good Samaritan parable. And who's the one that was the neighbor there? So listen, Romans 13.8. Again, I said this is all over the place in the Bible. Think about this text in this light again. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except... Oh, wait, I guess we do owe some... I, I guess we do owe people something. We owe them love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So... There are massive implications, brothers and sisters, to the fact that everybody that you bump into is an image bearer, is made in the image of God, and therefore has dignity and worth and actually has rights. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this in The Weight of Glory, which, by the way, is just like an incredible essay. Um, commend the whole thing to you. But he says this, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He doesn't mean literally that we are going to be gods and goddesses. He's saying, you know, we're going to be glorified creatures that you know, we would be tempted to, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself here. Anyway, just read it in context. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or a horror and a corruption such as you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. 
It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Huge implications to the fact that all these people that kind of we run into with need, they're made in God's image and there are massive implications to that. There are no ordinary people. So when we consider what the book of Proverbs teaches us about how to wisely meet need, one of the first things we find is we've got to start with the nature of God and the nature of man. We also find in the book of Proverbs motivation for meeting needs, <laughs> which is helpful, right? Because we're going to need that because we naturally, you know, avoid or shrink back into self-protection. We can be stingy because we think, you know, that's going to be better for us. Will there be enough for me? We need to learn the blessing and the promise that comes when we willingly bless others. So we are wisely instructed that point number two, you reap what you sow. Look at Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So again, this is in God's universe, in God's economy, as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we find that we have all we need. This is echoed again and again in the Bible, not least by our Lord Jesus himself, which the Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 35. He said this to them, in all these things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So that's not selfish pragmatism like, oh, you gave this to me because you just want to be happy. Selfish jerk. <laughs> like, you're so generous, you selfish jerk. No, this is not selfish pragmatism. This is, God set the world up this way. It's wisdom to go with the grain of God's will and his ways. It's skill for living life as God intended according to the way that he made the world. And isn't it wonderful that he set the world up this way, that it's more blessed to give than to receive, which reflects his generous heart. But wait, you reap what you sow. I mean, if that's true, then it cuts both ways, right? I mean, if you reap what you sow, then... Does that mean that poverty is simply a result of a failure to sow? I mean, Proverbs says in Proverbs 12, 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. 
Proverbs says in 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. In Proverbs 28.19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So does that mean that poverty is simply a result of failure to sow? It can be, right? We can't mute any of those texts. But not necessarily. Not all poverty is created equal. Not all poverty or need is a result of laziness and folly. Proverbs is not saying that everyone who is stuck in poverty is following worthless pursuits. It doesn't say that all those who are poor are simply getting what they deserve, reaping what they've sown or failed to sow. Proverbs isn't that simplistic. It says, it makes these statements and then nuances them with other statements, intending for us to take all of them in view. So Proverbs also says in 13.23, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. I mean, how many times has that happened in the history of the world? So some who are poor have been victims of injustice. They have actually reaped what others have wickedly, selfishly sown. And we can't mute that text either. So we need wisdom. So we need to guard ourselves from jumping to conclusions and using that assumption as justification to avoid or ignore the need. And I think we should also say here that God doesn't call us to only help those who've never made a financial mistake. Like whom among us falls into that category? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. God has been merciful to us all. Like if we're not in hell this morning, which I don't think any of us are, I think that's a clear um, conclusion. Like none of us is getting what we deserve. We're all doing better than we deserve. I mean, if we are in Christ, everything is ours. We are doing so well. The riches of his mercy are ours in Christ. Now listen, this doesn't mean that we should enable enable folly. No, that would be foolish to enable folly. That actually wouldn't even be loving to enable folly. And the book of Proverbs gives serious warnings to the sluggard, okay, which Eugene is going to hit in two weeks when we get to the theme of wisdom and work. There's also serious exhortations in First and Second Thessalonians in the New Testament where we find places that for the longest time I actually thought it was just my, my nunnies, you know, my Italian grandma who lived to be 100. She was awesome. And she used to say, if you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> I was like, okay, right on, nunny. Well, that wasn't just her wisdom. That was biblical wisdom. You know, that's in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay? So, again, we need to take all of these things into consideration. We need wisdom to meet need wisely. So back to the point, Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And he, the Lord, will repay him for his deed. What does this mean? What in the world does it mean to lend to the Lord? We can't put God in our debt, right? I mean, God isn't in need such that he comes to us for a loan. So what does this mean? Well, first, again, it assumes that the poor person is an image bearer. To be generous to an image bearer, 
who ultimately belongs to God, is to give to the one whose image they bear. I mean, this kind of has sympathetic vibrations with Matthew 25. Lord, when were you hungry and we gave you food and when were you thirsty and we gave you something to drink or a stranger and we welcomed you in? To give to the poor is to give, lend to the Lord. What this means is the poor can't pay you back oftentimes, okay? So you're lending not ultimately to them, but to the Lord who will repay you for that deed. This is a grace gift, not a business transaction. You don't need to be a Christian. You don't need any grace, supernatural grace, to do a business transaction. But we do need grace to give without any expectation of return on a horizontal level. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6? If you love those who love you, what benefit? Literally, it's grace. If you love those who love you, what, what grace is that? That's not a work of grace. What benefit is that to you? For even sinners do that. If you do good to those who do good to you, what grace does it take to do that? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit, what grace is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your, even your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Lend to the Lord, and he will repay. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Or a little bit later in the book of Luke, in chapter 14, remember that banquet? And Jesus said, to the man who had invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. If you're just doing this on kind of a transactional level, like, hey, I'll bless you, you bless me. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, and there's nothing wrong with inviting your friends for dinner, whatever, but When you give a feast, how about this? Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But God can. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So do we believe that we reap what we sow? What is the timeline for our primary investment strategy? You know, 6, 12, 18-month CDs are pretty hot right now. Index funds for decades, you know? You can just set it and forget it. Not really going to beat the market over the long haul, right? What's the timeline? Like 10,000 years? Like 10 million years? Laying up treasure in heaven? The Lord will repay? So first, the implication of the image of God and the rights of the poor. Second, we reap what we sow. Again, okay, this is convicting, sobering. Like, we'll strap in, there's more. When we see poverty and need, we often want to turn away. Like, we need wisdom to know what to do. And Proverbs tells us, don't look away. Keep your eyes open. Look at 28, 27. Proverbs is point number three, open eyes. Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want. The Lord will take care of you. Trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. But he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Don't hide your eyes. Let's not hide our eyes from poverty and need. Instead, give. Instead of looking away, Proverbs counsels us to have a bountiful, generous eye. Look at Proverbs 22, 9. 
Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Bruce Waltke said it this way, the generous, in contrast to the selfish, does not hasten to advance his own life, but that of his neighbor. Okay, so if you have a good eye, a bountiful eye, it's literally a good eye, you're generous, you're willing to share. Its antonym is also present in the Proverbs. It's an evil eye. And it's not like, I'm going to give you the evil eye. It's grudging and stingy and resentful. So one example, um, Proverbs 23, 6, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, is how it's translated, but one whose eye is evil. Do not desire his delicacies, for he's like one who is inwardly calculating. Oh, eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart isn't with you. He's calculating. So do you see how this point, open your eyes, actually rolls both heart and eyes together? Open heart, open eyes. Closed heart, look away. You see that? So if you have a bad eye, it's because you have a bad heart. So your bad heart will lead you to hide your eyes in the face of need. So we've got to put those impulses to death and approach need with an open heart to God and others and a bountiful eye that comes from a generous heart, which, again, is only created when we have realized and experienced and tasted and seen how good and generous and loving and like lavish God has been toward us with his mercy and grace. So again, this is all over the place. 1 John 3, 16 to 18. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Like he's done everything. He's done the hardest thing. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We love because he first loved us. If, any, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart toward him, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And by the way, this focuses, First John 3, 16, sometimes this passage or Matthew 25 can be used a little sloppily. Um, it's focusing on needs among believers. Okay? It says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. And in Matthew 25, when did we see you? Well, Jesus identifies with his people, right? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You're persecuting my people, you're picking on me. You're picking a fight with me. But that doesn't mean that this doesn't apply to non-Christians, people out there that we meet. In Luke 10, Good Samaritan parable, that guy doesn't know this bloody beaten up guy on the ground from Adam. And he helps him anyway. And then in Galatians 6, verse 10, it calls us to do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So listen, this doesn't mean that you have to meet every apparent need or every request without any vetting. It does mean that we don't avoid the decision. We need an open heart, an open eyes, bountiful eye that's willing to meet any legitimate need that we are able to meet. See, there's qualifiers there. But again, open heart, open eyes, 
And then, fourth point, open ear. Proverbs also calls us to have an open ear. Look at Proverbs 21, 13. It's very similar to the previous point, but the repetition, the reinforcement from a different angle is worthy of consideration. Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Apparently there's a saying, when the heart is hard, the ear is deaf. Again, similar to the last point. The consequence is sobering. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So it's sobering, but it's not surprising. Like already in chapter 21, we would have read, if we were reading sequentially, 21.3 says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Right? To obey is better than sacrifice is what we read in, you know, 1 Samuel 15 and elsewhere. Like, if you just keep coming to church and going through the motions, but you are just like going like this to the needs around you, it's hypocrisy. Why would God answer you if you're not willing to answer the cry of the poor? I mean, think of the parable that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus. Or the judgment scene that Jesus paints with the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25. Similar logic in other aspects of the Christian life as well. Why should God forgive us if we're unwilling to forgive? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Why should God be merciful to you if you're an unmerciful servant? Right? If we've been forgiven 10,000 talents and then we go and choke somebody else, like, pay what you owe. Sobering reasoning. And actually, the righteous contrast to Proverbs 21, 13 is found in the passage that Eugene read. Did you hear it? Remember? So I'm not going to read all of 6 to 12 again, but listen to just one portion here. So if you choose the right fast to share your bread, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them, etc., then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. So our all-wise God is calling us to walk the path of wisdom and wise love. He's calling us to trust in him with all of our heart, not take not lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him, including in meeting needs, so that he is the one directing our paths. He wants us to have an open heart and open eyes and open ears. And then he wants us to open our hands. Point number five, Proverbs 31.20. The worthy woman, the worthy wife, the excellent wife, she opens her hand, Proverbs 31.20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So this woman is an exemplar of wisdom to be imitated. And actually, Bill Hughes sent me a quote from, um, I guess Tim and Kathy Keller have a devotional on Proverbs, and he sent a quote from there. So this is from that book. Um, This wife is actively concerned with the needs of the poor. Proverbs teaches that the wise and righteous are generous to and advocates for the poor. And so the husband should be no less committed to justice than his wife. But this text does not mean simply that a wife and husband should be marked by social concern as individuals. The implication is that the family has a ministry to the poor. Jesus challenges us to open our homes to those in need. This could mean the elderly, the chronically sick, single parents, or new immigrants. 
John Newton wrote of these verses of amazing grace um, fame. I do not think it is unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words do not teach us that it is in some respects our duty to give a preference to the poor, I am at a loss to understand them. A husband and wife should have a strategy for together extending practical love, especially to their needy neighbors. So a closed hand is a closed heart. Again, think of Luke 10, 25 to 37. Who's my neighbor? Do we pass by on the other side of the street with our excuses? Or do we approach that need and open our hands to help? Open heart and eyes, open ear, open hand. One more bodily representation of openness in Proverbs. Also in Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, open your mouth. Open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is, call, this is a call to advocacy, right? I mean, maybe formal advocacy if you have, you know, legal training or whatever, but advocacy nonetheless, to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. So we should defend the rights of the poor and needy which takes us right back to point number one, right? The rights of the poor and needy because they're made in God's image and have dignity and worth as a result. So this certainly applies to the unborn and the cause of life, right? Application in two weeks, October 5th, the Door of Hope banquet. Go to the banquet, support that worthy ministry because they are doing just this. It can apply to the elderly with the unique vulnerabilities that they may have to speak up and advocate for them. It can apply to those with disabilities. Stand up, speak up is the right thing to do, the wise thing to do. This can also apply to refugees, okay? And just so that we don't get derailed here, I'm thinking of legal aliens, okay? Here are people who have most likely suffered terrible injustice, like just one recent illustration here. So back during COVID at one point, our community group was meeting in um, Talladega Park and afterwards, Lily brought the dog and we went to the bark park and I met this guy and anyways, opportunity to share the gospel with him and I've become friends with him and we see each other every once in a while, met up for coffee, blah, blah, blah. He calls me out of the blue and says, hey Chris, um, there's this refugee family that you know, a friend of mine has an apartment and he's letting them stay there and if there's any way that you could help, like, that'd be great, okay? So our family on a Sunday, you know, got some produce from our garden, just this was gonna be a Muslim family, family from Afghanistan, so we wanted to just bring something that they would actually want to eat and was kind of kosher with them. And we went down and met this family, um, a mother and two sons, 19 and 14. And Beth gave the woman a hug. She didn't really speak much English. We had to kind of speak all through the 19-year-old son who had very good English. Um, and the Taliban killed her husband, their father, and carted off a couple of the sisters. So you can imagine what they've been through. I mean, talk about injustice perpetrated against them and they are mute like she can't even speak English 
These people need some help. They're going to need some advocacy. (laughs) Advocacy. I mean, obviously, their greatest need is the gospel, right? I I love what John Piper says. Like, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So that's their greatest need, but they have lots of material, physical needs. And, you know, it's not like you just stand there and preach the gospel and ignore those material needs. It's both and. So that's just one example. And speaking of refugee ministry, we are actually kind of preparing to start some ministry to refugees here. Okay? So next Sunday, after the service, over lunch, for about an hour or so, we're going to have a representative who is actually doing this ministry at her church down in Middletown. It's actually somebody that we know. Um, And it was going so well that a local agency hired her to kind of direct their efforts in this area. Okay, so she's going to come and um, kind of help us understand what this would look like to start small and adopt one family to meet practical needs. Their their church has actually been able to kind of focus on... um, refugees from Colombia, and they have some Spanish speakers in their church, and some of those folks have come to faith, and it's just been a beautiful um, thing that's happened there, but there's like tons of need. Don't know exactly where our family will come from. Uh, may actually be in Africa. But anyway, all this to say, if you're interested in that, there'll be an email this week, and you can sign up to at least come to the interest meeting next Sunday. Um, and then we're going to get started by loving on one family and inviting them in to our family. So, again, maybe with that reference to refugee ministry, let me just show you the heart of God. This is one sort of poverty, need, vulnerability, um, but listen to the heart of God for the refugee, okay? Leviticus 19.33 says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then again in Deuteronomy 10.18, he executes justice. This is God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So we are called to love the sojourner, and we can because God first loved us when we were wandering strangers, like foreigners, to the kingdom of God, right? We were all homeless wanderers east of Eden, And God, in his great-hearted love and mercy and hospitality, welcomed us in through Christ. That's what salvation is. In fact, Ephesians 2 says it this way. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
are you in the family, in the kingdom, in the commonwealth of God because you're just so smart and, you know, got that good old Protestant work ethic? No, it was completely by God's mercy and grace. Like, you know what it was like to be a stranger and displaced and exiled, right, from home with God? So if you know that grace, there's an impulse then to love the stranger because you want to welcome them in, not just to America, we want to welcome them into the kingdom of God, but we want to love them with that same kind of love your neighbor as yourself, heartbeat, open heart, open eyes, open ears, open hands, open our mouths. So let's just step back here. The call to meet needs is great. We need wisdom. We need grace to wisely meet need around us. And that grace comes through the gospel of Jesus, who is our wisdom. He's the greater Samaritan-like neighbor who loved us to the utmost. Okay, We were worse off than that beaten-up, bloodied guy left for dead on the road. We were dead in our sins. And Jesus is the better, good Samaritan. Like, so that guy risked his safety. You know, maybe the robbers are still hiding behind that rock and they're going to beat me up too. Jesus didn't just risk his safety. He gave his life. This guy gave some of his money to meet the needs. Jesus gave himself to pay the infinite debt of our sin. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, infinitely rich, yet for our sake he became poor, became a slave all the way to the point of death, death on a cross, all for us so that by his poverty our infinite debt wiped out and we become heirs like adopted, beloved children in the family, the kingdom of God, and we have all of his riches of his mercy and grace and all of his very great and precious promises that are, are, are ours. So what is it? Like, we're gonna navigate this world, we're gonna see all kinds of need. What sets us free? What's in, what empowers us to move toward need with this kind of love? The gospel of God's neighbor love toward us through Christ. And that lawyer in Luke 10 wanted to justify his minimalism. Thank God that Jesus didn't love us minimalistically, if that's even a word. He loved us to the utmost. He neighbored us perfectly. We have been neighbored by one who gave his life to save ours. When we have been saved and our life is safely hidden with Christ and God and our future is secure, we can then risk our safety for the good of somebody else. Risk our comfort. And we have a neighbor, capital N, who promised to meet our needs. He owns it all. He's going to provide for us out of the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus so we can actually sacrificially give knowing he's going to take care of us. So in a sense, kind of like a summary statement as far as the righteous and the wicked and In Proverbs, Bruce Waltke said this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage others, the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community and others to advantage themselves. So walking this wise path 
is to so know the lavish grace of God through Christ, the provision and promise of God to us, that it changes our hearts and opens us up to God and others and enables us to love as we've been loved, enables us to live wisely like this, open to God and open to others. All right? So there's lots of specific applications. We're going to need to wrestle with these things as we go out and are faced with more and more need, you know, in different contexts. But there's so much in Proverbs to help us navigate the path of wisdom in this regard. So let's pray for God's wisdom and let's even continue to encourage and help each other as we wrestle with what this looks like um, day to day, week to week in our individual lives. Lord, you say that if any lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. And to ask for wisdom in this regard, I think any of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we deserve your reproach. We have selfishly shrunk back. We've closed our hearts and our eyes and our ears. But Lord, thank you that by your mercy and your grace, if we're honest with ourselves, we confess our sins. You're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to remind us of how you have generously provided for us and welcomed us in. Fill us up on your grace and goodness so that we are willing and able by your grace to live open to you, whatever you have for us, however you want to lead us and use us to meet needs wisely. Lord, help us for your great namesake, for the good of others. Certainly, there's plenty of temporal need, real suffering, but most importantly, eternal suffering and need that is all around us. And may we not shrink back from meeting, seeking to meet those needs as well by sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.